Hey there, welcome to another episode of ENT in a Nutshell. My name is Jason Barnes, and today we are again joined by Dr. Michael Gluth, neurotologist, and we'll be discussing cholesteatoma. Dr. Gluth, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Uh, excited about today's podcast. And as an introduction, we'll be discussing cholesteatoma, like I said, but as a plug, it's probably worth it to listen to the previous episode that we recorded together on chronic otitis media, uh, as that's a good kind of foundation and introduction to what we're going to be talking about here. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that and encourage anyone who's listening to this uh, to go back and listen to the Chronic Ear podcast first, because that frames a lot of what we're talking about here today. Uh, to start, could you tell us how folks present with cholesteatoma? Sure. So similar to a presentation of any patient with chronic ear disease, this is going to be someone classically that comes into the office with persisting odorrhea and hearing loss. And um, cholesteatoma is usually seen in patients who have some form of uh, pre-existing chronic ear disease, you know, whether it's chronic um, you know, purulent odorrhea or something just as simple as, you know, recurrent acute otitis media or chronic uh, eustachian tube dysfunction. Um, not always do the patients recount this, but, uh, but usually that's the case. And then with respect to the hearing loss, you know, we're thinking about a unilateral conductive hearing loss, maybe mixed, uh, but usually conductive. And then any of the other sort of non-specific ear um, complaints, you know, tinnitus, fullness in the ear, pressure, you know, these are all common. Patients may have vertigo, but that would be much less common, and if present, would be concerning for uh, some type of inner ear complication, such as a perilymph fistula. Uh, I think it's uh, noteworthy to mention that pain is not usually a prominent part of cholesteatoma presentation. Uh, these are going to be mostly adults, but you know it's not rare in kids, so we definitely see cholesteatoma in children. And, um, you know, like I said, um, a lot of these patients uh, have had um, underlying chronic ear disease. So um, when we think about uh, risk factors for chronic ear disease, uh, which in fact are similar to those for acute otitis media, you know, these patients have, may have pre-existing rhinologic disease, adenoiditis, eustachian tube dysfunction, past severe acute otitis media or otitis media with effusion. Maybe they've had tympanostomy tubes in the, in the past. It's controversial whether or not uh, tobacco is an issue, but, you know, a smoker would uh, perhaps raise concern. Social factors that we see with chronic ear disease, like poor hygiene, living conditions, uh, or poor nutrition may or may not have an impact. Perhaps patients that have craniofacial abnormalities that impact eustachian tube dysfunction might be at higher risk for cholesteatoma. And then one thing I think which is a bit interesting is the indigenous peoples of places like Australia, Alaska, southwestern United States, and Greenland are at high risk for chronic um, ear disease. But often these folks uh, have developed early perforation, and it's thought that that may actually be protective uh, against developing a cholesteatoma in some cases. So that's not definitive, but that's just uh, kind of an interesting tidbit. And what's some of the epidemiology around those presenting with cholesteatoma? For the common form of cholesteatoma or acquired type cholesteatoma, uh, usually um, these are younger adults, so presenting within the second or third decade of life. Uh, there's a slight male predominance, but you know these are not hard and fast rules. Certainly, uh, females and uh, younger and older individuals can present to clinic with a cholesteatoma. 
Um, congenital cholesteatoma, which is a rare variant uh, or uncommon variant, uh, is far more common in males, uh, usually diagnosed around the age of about four to five. And altogether, cholesteatoma roughly affects about one in 10,000 uh, individuals. So when you first see a patient with cholesteatoma in your clinic, they have a conductive hearing loss, maybe some otorrhea. Can you tell us how you perform physical exam, what types of things you're looking for, and how you approach the speculum exam in clinic? Sure. So um, like I mentioned with the podcast on chronic ear disease, you're going to pay attention to the nose, the nasopharynx, and any sort of rhinologic condition that may contribute to eustachian tube dysfunction. But specific to the otoscopic exam, um, you know, you start out, of course, looking at the condition of the eardrum. So uh, usually the eardrum has some type of retraction, uh, uh, either involving the pars flaccida or pars tensa. Cholesteatoma from pars flaccida would be uh, more common. And then what you see is basically a retained tuft of um, squamous epithelium uh, uh, or keratin debris uh, within the middle ear space. Uh, sometimes, you know, if this is derived from pars flaccida, you may only see a small little tuft of skin uh, just overlying the origin site. Uh, and sometimes there's a little bit of crusting or granulation in this area. But surprisingly, um, those findings can be subtle. And uh, what you're seeing um, in front of you can really just be the tip of the iceberg. Uh, pars tensa cholesteatoma usually is associated with the you know, typical things you would ex expect with chronic ear disease. So a more general uh, pars tensa retraction, perhaps underlying middle ear effusion. Um, if the pars tensa is normal and the patient has a pars flaccida origin cholesteatoma, you may see uh, a retrotympanic white mass. Um, that said, some of these patients have concurrent perforations, especially pars tensa, uh, cholesteatomas, or any patient who's had a past tympanostomy tube. So, for example, you may see a posterior retraction pocket cholesteatoma of the pars tensa uh, concurrent with an anterior residual perforation from a tympanostomy tube. Uh, so often you'll see pus. We mention aural polyp as being something that should raise one's suspicion for cholesteatoma. So that's something uh, to be aware of. Uh, granulation tissue involving the middle ear, uh, mucosa, or um, associated meringitis of the drum head. Um, you can see evidence of an eroded um, ossicular chain, so eroded ankylostapedial joint. Atypical infection might um, be manifested by fungal elements, so fungal spores in the ear canal or on the eardrum. Uh, you may see stigmata of past ear surgery, so a postauricular incision, evidence of prior grafting or an extruded tube. Specifically, if there's a draining ear and there's a significant perforation present, then you need to be thinking about the condition of the margins of the perforation. So can you see evidence of squamous epithelial ingrowth around the undersurface of the drum head? And these usually are especially thickened, and you know you should be thinking about this in someone who has had a past uh, failed tympanoplasty. Uh, and then for the unique situation of congenital cholesteatoma, that would be a quiet ear with an intact eardrum, uh, but a retrotympanic whitish mass, usually in the anterior superior aspect, but posterior, a posterior mass is possible, especially in East Asian populations. And what else is on your differential diagnosis when you're seeing these patients in clinic? 
Right. So, of course, you're going to think about the spectrum of chronic ear disease. So chronic otitis media without cholesteatoma, of course, is going to be the most common thing that you would see. But, you know, you need to think about other things. So any type of ear canal pathology, you'll have referrals from primary care for cholesteatoma when, in fact, the patient has an osteoma or an exostosis. Um, if there's a lot of infection, you know, there may be something with uh, in the spectrum of otitis externa. And then there's also the situation of external auditory canal cholesteatoma, which pathologically is uh, quite the same as middle ear cholesteatoma, but different in clinical presentation, outlook, and behavior. I think you're also thinking about neoplastic disease, so malignant neoplasms, squamous cell carcinoma, adenoid cystic carcinoma especially, uh, or secondary involvement of the temporal bone by a parotid tumor. So any case of chronic ear disease where you see some granulation and a case that's not re responding to medical therapy, there should be a low threshold for biopsy. There's also benign neoplasm, so a middle ear squamous papilloma, a paraganglioma, or an adenoma. Um, you should consider something uncommon like Langerhans cell histiocytosis. Tympanosclerosis involving the middle ear or eardrum is a whitish plaque, which sometimes can also be confused for a cholesteatoma. And then lastly, um, I think this is special, especially a radiologic condition. Um, patients who've had chronic ear disease often will have erosion of the tegmen, and these patients can develop a meningocele or an encephalocele into the mastoid or attic, and uh, that also can be confusing for possible cholesteatoma. I next wanted to move on to pathophysiology, and I find this particularly interesting. Can you first just start with describing what is a cholesteatoma? So cholesteatoma is, in essence, a pseudoneoplasm consisting of uh, keratinizing squamous epithelium, which has been displaced into the middle ear space. And so these often have a sac or cyst-like structure that has become trapped within the middle ear. It's usually advancing uh, medially, expanding, uh, growing uh, into the various invaginations of the middle ear and mastoid space. Keratin is particularly adept at generating a secondary foreign body response, and so that's where you get aural polyp, and that's where you'll get a lot of associated inflammation with a giant cell reaction. There is always this question of when does a retraction pocket become a cholesteatoma? So you'll, you'll see patients with um, retraction pockets that you follow over time, and so the simple um, idea there is that you know, if you have a pocket that's not outwardly self-cleaning and it's uh, medially advancing and expansile, then it, it becomes a cholesteatoma. I also think that it's important to understand that this is just not ordinary skin. So sometimes we'll simplify this into saying cholesteatoma is skin trapped in the middle ear space. And while that is correct, um, I think it's important to understand that the epithelium of the eardrum and the ear canal is unique in that there is gene expression that drives centrifugal migration. So in other words, the epithelium that turns into an acquired cholesteatoma is uniquely migratory. Also, we see that there's hyperexpression of uh, growth factors as compared to normal skin, things like EGFR, epithelial growth factor receptor, or TGF-alpha. Um, so really, this is metabolically very active skin that's inherently programmed to migrate. 
when we look at a cholesteatoma sac, uh, there's uh, two main parts to it. Uh, there's what we call a matrix. And if you uh, look at a slide of a cholesteatoma, the matrix, matrix looks just like skin from anywhere else. Uh, and then, uh, you know, with all of the, you know, normal classic uh, layers. And then overlying this sort of on the outside of the sac, there's what we call a perimatrix. And perimatrix is just sort of this layer of loose connective tissue uh, where there are blood vessels. And often uh, that's the area where you'll see um, inflammatory cells. So the key thing is that usually at the interface between the perimatrix and underlying tympanomastoid bone, you see this destructive process going on of resorptive osteitis where you have osteoclastic mediated bone destruction. And, you know, if you read some descriptions of this, sometimes it's described as being an enzymatically driven process. And that's really um, probably not the case. So that's probably misunderstood. The key thing is that this is an osteoclastic uh, mediated uh, resorptive process. And then, of course, in addition to that, uh, the retained keratin debris of a cholesteatoma is a nidus for infection. And uh, in fact, the bone destructive process is known to be worse if the um, overall inflammatory process is ramped up, so to speak, by co-infection uh, with bacteria, especially Pseudomonas. So this has really been shown to be the case in, in the laboratory. And we've already started to touch on this in presentation. You talked about two different types of cholesteatoma, one being acquired and the other being congenital. Could you first tell us about acquired cholesteatoma and what some of the subsets are of acquired cholesteatoma? Sure. So acquired cholesteatoma is going to comprise the overwhelming majority of these cases. And so the classification of cholesteatoma is not uniform. Often uh, in the older literature, acquired cholesteatoma was broken down as being primary or secondary, but some of the newer classification systems are going more towards calling these retraction pocket or non-retraction pocket cholesteatomas. So retraction pocket cholesteatoma would be much more common, and of course it is a cholesteatoma that forms uh, out of a, an underlying retraction of, you know, part of the tympanic membrane. Uh, the most common site of formation would be the posterior aspect of the pars flaccida, followed by the posterior aspect of the pars tensa, uh, followed by the anterior part of the pars flaccida. And um, so the retraction pocket cholesteatomas are then further subtyped as being either a primary uh, or retraction pocket pars tensa cholesteatoma or pars flaccida cholesteatoma. And then there is a group of uh, combination cholesteatomas which involved uh, both parts. So in some of the older literature, you may have seen these referred to as, for example, a primary epitympanic or primary, primary mesotympanic cholesteatoma, but that is being replaced by the pars flaccida or pars uh, tensa nomenclature. So in understanding retraction pocket cholesteatoma, there are a number of theories uh, related, to, related to how folks develop these. And I think one thing that's uh, important to understand is that these theories are not mutually exclusive. So in other words, it's not as if one of them is right and all of the others are wrong. So there can be you know, multiple things going on that can lead to a cholesteatoma. 
So overwhelmingly, um, the main theory has to do with uh, retraction pocket development due to underlying disventilation of the middle ear space. And as we talk about in the Chronic Ear podcast, disventilation can be universal involving the entire tympanomastoid space, or it can be um, selective or compartmentalized to a selectively um, involve just the attic, for example. So um, we know that retraction pocket uh, is a viable theory for development of cholesteatoma because we can see it unfold clinically in front of our eyes. So we, so we know that that happens. Um, there's another theory, which is called the invasion theory. And what happens here is that basically inflammation of the eardrum uh, can result in a break in the basement membrane. And as the basement membrane breaks open, there can be ingrowth of squamous epithelium through that break. This too is one that you can see histopathologic evidence of. Uh, so, um, you know, we know that it's possible for this to happen. Um, how much of a role does this play in most of the cholesteatomas we see in the clinic? I don't know, uh, but, uh, but it is a, a sort of a viable thing. Then there's two other theories, which I think really are theories in that, you know, they're somewhat speculative and there's not a lot of evidence to support. So uh, there's a more recently put forth um, traction pulsion theory. And the idea is that you start to have a retraction and then the mucosa along the middle ear folds uh, within the middle ear space will draw the, the uh, epithelium inward, almost like a conveyor belt uh, or something like that. Uh, and then the other one is kind of the known as the metaplasia theory. And so, you know, that would be a situation where the middle ear mucosa undergoes chronic inflammation. And then you have this uh, metaplasia where it uh, turns into squamous epithelium. And so um, that's not very well supported, but, you know, you'll hear people talk about that a bit, too. And when you talk more about uh, primary cholesteatoma, there are some patterns of spread that you can consider. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, so clinically, it's very useful to understand that there are classic pathways by which these spread to the various uh, subsites of the temporal bone. So with respect to the most common type, which would be the pars flaccida cholesteatoma, uh, these develop as a retraction pocket uh, that is la within the lateral epitympanic space. So the lateral epitympanic space is also known as prussic space. And so basically, the Pars flaccida in the posterior aspect, just overlying the malleus neck, will retract inward and start to develop a cholesteatoma. And so these can expand um, from the attic either towards the mastoid or towards the mesotympanum. And so the spread from a pars flaccida cholesteatoma into the mastoid classically occurs with expansion lateral to the incus, and you can appreciate this on CT scans. And then from there, it will extend into the antrum and then begin to fill the entire attic. With respect to expansion into the mesotympanum, there is a potential space called the posterior pouch of von Trolsch, uh, which is immediately under the posterior superior pars tensa. So expansion of a pars flaccida cholesteatoma uh, will uh, result in expansion of that pouch and then secondary involvement of the mesotympanum. I think one thing that's important to understand about pars flaccida cholesteatoma is that 
they often don't enter or involve the sinus tympani, or if they do, they do so sort of secondarily as part of a pretty well-defined large sac that's otherwise filling the mesotympanum. And so um, getting them out or rolling them out of that posterior mesotympanum is not always as difficult as, uh, for example, the pars tensa cholesteatomas. And then I'll briefly mention that there's an alternate version that develops uh, in the area of the anterior pars flaccida. So these cholesteatomas expand into the attic anterior to the neck and head of the malleus. Uh, they fill the anterior epitympanic space and extend into the supratubal recess. And really sort of the key pearl to know about these is that they have a higher than normal rate of associated facial nerve issues. And that's probably because the geniculate ganglion uh, is present right in the area where they're expanding. As far as pars tensa cholesteatoma goes, you know, this uh, develops from retraction of the posterior pars tensa. These patients often have significant underlying um, eustachian tube dysfunction and actually may have more extensive or global drum collapse. So what happens is basically that the retraction pocket in the posterior pars tensa uh, impacts the incus and then starts to extend into the posterior mesotympanum. And then once that makes a transition from being a retraction pocket into a cholesteatoma, then you have uh, one of these pars tensa cholesteatomas. These um, often will involve the oval window niche very early. So stapes superstructure and uh, erosion or foot plate involvement is very common. And then you'll have um, these cholesteatomas grow into the attic, taking a course that actually extends medial to the incus. So while they erode the incus long process, that expansion medial to the incus often also erodes the underlying bone of the tympanic segment of the fallopian canal. So, you know, I think one thing to keep in mind is that in general, from a surgical standpoint, these pars tensa cholesteatomas have a much more complicated pattern of spread, uh, which is more difficult to deal with as opposed to pars flaccida cholesteatoma. Great. So we've discussed the primary acquired cholesteatoma, which you've taught us is also known as the retraction pocket cholesteatoma. Um, could you now tell us about the secondary acquired or the non-retraction pocket cholesteatoma? Sure. So um, there's basically two subtypes of these. So they're subtyped as being either due to a perforation. Uh, so this would be the situation, again, where you have squamous epithelial ingrowth around the margins of a perforation. Um, this is something that you have to have a reasonably high index of suspicion to recognize because it's not always clinically evident in the office. And again, an important pearl there would be someone who's failed tympanoplasty um, um, may be you know, at higher risk of having one of these. And so the other type, subtype, would be just the iatrogenic cholesteatoma. And this would be a patient who's had implantation of squamous epithelium into the middle ear uh, during some prior surgery. So, for example, a past tympanostomy tube or tympanoplasty or something like that. And could you tell us a little bit about congenital cholesteatoma? Sure. So... Um, this uh, comprises no more than maybe 2 to 5% of all cholesteatomas. It's probably going to vary dependent on 
how much of a pediatric practice uh, a surgeon has. And so the diagnosis of congenital cholesteatoma is based on a few things. So first of all, obviously you encounter, definitively encounter cholesteatoma in the middle ear space. Uh, the patient should have no history of a perforation uh, or significant eardrum retraction. There should be no history of prior ear surgery, including placement of a tympanostomy tube as well. That said, it is okay to have, you know, had past middle ear effusion or acute otitis media. Classically, again, this is a retrotympanic whitish mass, uh, which presents in a patient who's maybe four or five years old, intimately associated with the tensor tendon and cochleiform process. The origin of these is not uh, de definitively known, but it's associated with an embryonic rest of epithelial tissue that's been implanted into the ear. So there's been uh, speculation as to whether or not reflux of embryonic fluid with epithelial cells into the middle ear space causes this, but no one you know, really knows. And again, uh, these often are not diagnosed until they've grown fairly large uh, because patients might not have otorrhea or other stigmata of chronic ear disease. Generally speaking, most otologists consider cholesteatoma, especially the large ones, to be fairly challenging to deal with surgically. And one of the questions that I like to ask, especially now that we've wrapped up the pathophysiology section, is what's the natural history of cholesteatoma? More specifically, what are some complications that occur in patients who have cholesteatoma or untreated cholesteatoma? Yeah, I think some of this has to do with how one chooses to define a complication. So if you have a very loose definition of what a complication is, then you know, you would expect that the overwhelming majority of cases would cause a problem. So, for example, if you consider erosion of the ossicular chain, uh, especially the incus being the most common a complication, then, you know, that's going to be extremely common. So, you know, in a general sense, uh, most of the complications that we see from cholesteatoma, again, are a function of their ability to erode bone. So erosion of the ossicular chain, the fallopian canal, the otic capsule, or the skull base um, obviously can lead to problems. Um, labyrinth fistula uh, occurs in maybe 5 to 10% of all surgical cases. And, you know, we think about those as being associated with a patient that presents with vertigo. Possibly they can have tulio phenomenon. So um, that would be uh, vertigo or sensitivity to loud sound exposure. And, um, and then the classic physical exam finding associated with that is Hindenburg sign, uh, where there is vertigo and or nystagmus induced with pneumatic otoscopy. Um, facial weakness associated um, from cholesteatoma is uh, pretty rare. Hard to know whether it's more common in cholesteatomatous cases of chronic otitis media than non-cholesteatomatous cases. These patients may have some degree of sensorineural hearing loss with or without associated serous or suppurative labyrinthitis. Lateral sinus or sigmoid th uh, thrombosis, you know, this is the patient that has, uh, you know, usually a, an associated uh, mastoiditis that causes a septic thrombus of the sigmoid sinus. These patients have often high spiking fevers with a picket fence pattern. Um, of course, coalescent mastoiditis, where you essentially have an abscess and destruction of the bony septations within the mastoid space and abscess formation underneath uh, the mastoid periosteum. 
And then, of course, the whole array of associated intracranial complications, be it meningitis, CSF leak, uh, development of an encephalocele, something like an epidural abscess, subdural empyema, brain abscess involving either the temporal lobe or cerebellum, uh, or the rare instance of otic uh, hydrocephalus. I next wanted to move on to workup. And as we've alluded to, we have uh, an episode on chronic ear disease where you nicely talked through different things to consider in the patient with chronic ear disease, including their ventilation status, tympanic membrane status. In terms of workup for cholesteatoma, could you speak to the role of imaging in these patients? Yeah. So, um, Imaging is, I, I guess, a little bit controversial. In my view, it's a good idea, really, for any case uh, with cholesteatoma. Uh, it might not be necessary to make the diagnosis. That's usually based on clinical exam, but it can be highly suggested uh, on uh, radiologic imaging, and the imaging helps in a lot of other ways. This usually involves a fine-cut CT of the temporal bone, and this gives us an idea of you know, first of all, what's the extent of cholesteatoma? Is it appear to be just limited to the middle ear? Or does it extend into the mastoid, for example? What's the pneumatization status of the temporal bone? Is it highly sclerotic? And of course, that could affect your approach. Is there a problem with uh, something like a labyrinthine fistula? Certainly, it would be useful to know about that ahead of your surgical case, because that might impact approach, uh, but also the way you would counsel the patient. Uh, what's the integrity of the skull base? Uh, what's the position of the sigmoid uh, or the tegmen? Uh, that also may have bearing on which approach you choose. What's the course of the facial nerve? Uh, so, you know, all of these things I think are very uh, useful to know. Having said that, there are plenty of very experienced, very sensible surgeons that don't routinely get uh, imaging, and, um, you know, that's okay. Um, so there are specific findings that we see on CT, which are uh, more highly suggestive than not of there being cholesteatoma. So the classic thing would be erosion or blunting of the scutum. So the lateral wall of the attic, uh, that uh, portion of the ear canal, which is immediately adjacent to the drum head uh, at its superior and slightly posterior aspect. So you can see that eroded. Uh, and so again, that's highly suggestive of a pars flaccida cholesteatoma. It's certainly possible to have, for example, something like a pars tensa cholesteatoma without scutum erosion. So sometimes that confuses the radiologist and you know keep that in mind. Um, if you see soft tissue with um, adjacent sort of expansile change or scalloping within the attic, uh, then that would be suspicious. Obviously, if the soft tissue erodes into the labyrinth, you know, you would worry about that. You know, most often that would be the horizontal semicircular canal. Um, obviously, cholesteatoma is a soft tissue density, but, you know, differentiating cholesteatoma matrix from something like mucoid effusion or aural polyp or thickened mucosa or some other neoplasm can be difficult. Um, but again, really that cardinal feature that, you know, uh, is um, first looked for would be blunting of the scutum associated with a pars flaccida cholesteatoma into the attic. And can you tell us about the role of MRI? When do you use it and what does it show in cases of cholesteatoma? 
So most patients are not going to get an MRI um, at the upfront diagnosis of cholesteatoma. So that would be very, very uncommon. It, that said, it might be useful if you're concerned about um, the presence of disease that um, you're not able to view in the office. So for example, like surveillance, uh, um, if someone's had past surgery and you're wondered about, wondering about uh, underlying recurrent cholesteatoma, um, if CT findings are um, unclear, uh, sometimes MRI can add um, additional information with respect to the nature of um, whatever soft tissue is being visualized. And then uh, in particular, if there's concern for a CSF leak or the presence of uh, encephalocele with associated skull base erosion, then MRI can be useful for that. This usually involves um, contrasted imaging, both T1 and T2 sequences. And really the unique thing with MRI and cholesteatoma would be acquisition of non-echoplanar diff diffusion-weighted images, which gives some ability to differentiate between cholesteatoma and other soft tissues. And can you tell us what that actually looks like on the scan? The cholesteatoma is extremely hyper-intense, so very, very bright white uh, on these uh, diffusion-weighted sequences. You do have to have some bulk of cholesteatoma to be detected. So, you know, most of the reviews say that somewhere of a minimum of, say, two to three millimeters of, you know, cholesteatoma diameter, if you're looking at a cyst or a pearl, uh, you know, to be detected. Um, there are some false negatives, especially when um, remnant epithelium is more of sort of a sheet-like presence as opposed to a cyst or a sac. So, you know, keep that in mind as well. And we've talked about uh, conductive hearing loss being a, a symptom of cholesteatoma. Can you speak briefly to what an audiogram will look like and what you're looking for on the audiogram? Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, before you operate on any of these patients, um, you're going to want to get an audiogram. First of all, to document the hearing status, especially the inner ear status, um, but also to help sort of guide what you're going to do surgically. So, you know, you're going to see various degrees of airbone gap. So either a conductive or a mixed hear hearing loss. Uh, tympanometry can be variable. So ranging from, you know, normal, if, if for example, you had a small pars flaccida cholesteatoma that's limited to the attic, you may have a normal type A tympanogram, but as is the case with the spectrum of chronic ear disease, you can have a type B or type C tympanogram as well. And then, of course, uh, you know, there will also be speech audiometry. So if a patient has very poor word recognition, or, you know, someone who's not a candidate for functional tympano-ossicular reconstruction, that too can impact your approach. So whether you're going to do, for example, like a canal wall down approach or a subtotal petrosectomy with ear canal closure. I next wanted to move on to treatment, but before we do, is there anything else you wanted to add about the diagnosis and workup for these patients? Yeah, so just a few general uh, simple diagnostic pearls. So, you know, the overwhelming majority of time diagnosing cholesteatoma is based on physical examination. So you look in the ear and you'll see that cholesteatoma is present. And again, we've already mentioned that if you see a polyp, then you, you know, should have increased suspicion. I will also say that these ears often will look a lot different once you treat the patient for infection and granulation. So, you know, I've had patients where I was 
highly suspicious of cholesteatoma, but after you calm things down with ear, an eardrop, you can see what's going on a lot better and you may have been mistaken. The other thing is that you really have to get down to carefully remove any crusting in or around the eardrum, especially if there's like a crust over the pars flaccida area. Very often I've seen uh, cholesteatomas in this area overlooked uh, because there was just a small crust that wasn't removed and then the you know, cholesteatoma wasn't seen. Uh, and so along those same lines, you have to actually you know, very deliberately look in the area of the pars flaccida. So I think that's important. And then the last thing is, you know, if you can't see the full extent of a retraction pocket in the office, then really you should be thinking about investigating closer with imaging. So, you know, I have operated on quite a few cases of very large cholesteatoma where the office findings were very unimpressive, where, you know, you saw what looked to be just sort of a deep quiet, pars flaccid retraction, and then lo and behold, there's a very large cholesteatoma. So moving on to treatment, the first thing I wanted to ask is, are there any preventive measures that we can take to prevent patients from developing a cholesteatoma? So it's hard to say this definitively, but probably recognizing these early um, as they're evolving is of some benefit. So the idea being that if you see progressive retraction of the eardrum, then doing something like placing a tympanostomy tube or perhaps performing a cartilage tympanoplasty to prevent further retraction, treating patients medically, or maybe even doing something like a balloon uh, eustachian tuboplasty might help. With respect to the non-retraction pocket cholesteatomas, you know, you would think that perhaps this could be prevented by the surgeon that's um, performing the initial surgery by being careful that there's no epithelium within the middle ear space. Um, and then as far as, um, you know, non-surgical measures, um, you know, when we see these patients, again, our initial goal is to reduce inflammation and infection, and that may aid in the diagnosis. But the bottom line is mostly these patients are going to eventually require surgery. So, you know, these non-surgical things or preventative measures are really trying to optimize the condition of the ear to help facilitate ease of surgery. Rarely you'll see a patient where you have a cholesteatoma or a deep retraction pocket that can be serially cleaned in the office. And you may do this in a patient who's, you know, maybe really old or someone who cannot or will not undergo definitive surgery, but, you know, the role for that tends to be pretty limited. Next, moving on to surgical intervention. I feel like this is a pretty broad topic and there are a lot of ways to approach surgery in a patient with cholesteatoma. Could you break down how you approach these patients and what the surgical approach options are? Right. So similar to our goals for surgery dealing with any form of chronic ear disease, first we're trying to uh, render the ear safe. So we want to prevent complications. Uh, we want to dry the ear and limit infection. And then finally, you know, the purpose of the ear is to hear. So we want to facilitate hearing either through functional reconstruction or allowance of using some type of a hearing aid or perhaps even placement of an implantable hearing device. And so um, when we think about the ways that we can surgically approach cholesteatoma, in the overwhelming majority, what we're trying to do is definitively remove it. And of course, that is the ideal, and that's usually what we're going for. 
However, there may be some cases where attempts at definitive removal have failed or there's some complicated aspect to the cholesteatoma which makes this difficult or some complicated aspect to the patient. And in those cases, then what we opt for is a mode of exteriorization where the cholesteatoma is exteriorized into some type of open space or cavity that's continuous with the ear canal. So there's a lot of ways that cholesteatoma can be managed. Uh, it's best not to be dogmatic about this. People often make these decisions based on their experience and comfort with you know, various surgical techniques. Um, but I think there are some you know, general guidelines that you know, I hope most people would think about. So of course you wanna think about the extent of the disease and try to tailor the aggressiveness of the approach to the extent of the cholesteatoma. You wanna look at the anatomy of the temporal bone. Is it sclerotic or is it not? What's the status of the hearing and what's the prognosis for, for hearing reconstruction? What has happened in the past? So what has worked previously or has failed previously? And of course, we don't wanna just continue to do the same thing over and over. So in general, over time, there's a tendency where we should be more aggressive perhaps. And then of course, we talk to the patient. What are their goals? You know, What are they trying to achieve? Do they want just one operation or are they open to the idea of um, some type of second look? So thinking about this broadly, you know, for cholesteatoma surgery, there's this idea of doing too much. So in, in other words, if we do a procedure that is unnecessarily aggressive, then what we're doing is introducing um, more downside or more potential risk of complication or unfavorable things with respect to lifestyle. So say, for example, the need to clean a mastoid cavity. On the other end, if you do too little, uh, then you're probably imparting greater risk of there being residual disease and not getting all of the cholesteatoma out. So really the goal and why I think experience is important and why I think the imaging is helpful is to choose just the right amount of surgery, you know, where you've optimized your ability to clear the disease, uh, but while concurrently, you know, limiting the, you know, complications or downside to whatever approach that, you know, we apply. So with that being said, what are the general approaches that are used in this situation? Yeah, so I think of this as basically um, five, you know, categories of approaches. You know, this is not official or definitive, but I think as I go through this, it'll make sense as to why we think about it this way. So, so the first and sort of most simple way to do this would be some type of a trans-canal approach. Um, so approaching a cholesteatoma, either with a microscope or an endoscope, um, by way of the ear canal. So this can be done either through the external meatus using a speculum or an indaural approach or by way of a postauricular incision. These transcanal approaches may include a canalplasty. Um, often they involve some type of an atacotomy. And so transcanal approaches are low in invasiveness, and usually they're applied for cholesteatomas that only involve the middle ear space. So it can be any of the subspaces, the attic, mesotympanum, hypotympanum, whatever, um, but generally these are cholesteatomas that don't extend into the mastoid. So the benefit here is that, you know, there's minimal disruption to the natural anatomy and a low level of invasiveness. 
The con is that when you're working through a narrow ear canal, it, in some cases, it might be difficult to apply instruments into a narrow space. Of course, endoscopic ear surgery seems to be helping this problem. And then, you know, you're not exteriorizing the disease. So as is the case with many of the other approaches, um, there needs to be ongoing surveillance or some type of a second look. So the second category of um, approach to cholesteatoma would be what I call a combined approach. So combined approaches um, basically involve the same transcanal approach with or without atacotomy, as we just talked about, alongside an intact canal wall mastoidectomy. So cholesteatoma involves incus. So the incus is typically removed in these cases. As the attic is approached through the mastoid, often the incus buttress is, is removed and there may be an extended facial recess drill out um, to augment the view uh, into the middle ear space. So general indications for combined approach or canal wall up tympanomastoidectomy would be a cholesteatoma that extends into the mastoid or a cholesteatoma that has significant significant concurrent mastoiditis that needs um, addressing. Perhaps it's applied in a case where there's no mastoid disease, but the surgeon decides that there's a benefit to having an additional trajectory for the instruments to approach the middle ear space through the facial recess. Um, the benefits, you know, these approaches preserve natural anatomy. They're generally associated with uh, favorable hearing outcomes and it addresses whatsoever, whatever is going on in the mastoid. The downside is that these approaches, like the transcanal approaches, require a second look or surveillance. Um, these may be difficult and in some cases even impossible to undertake in a sclerotic temporal bone where the sigmoid sinus can be up against the back edge of the ear canal or the tegmen can be very low lying. And in general, the rate of leaving residual disease can range anywhere from 20 to 40%. So um, not a small rate of uh, residual disease. The next grouping would be the open approaches. So this would be your canal wall down tympanomastoidectomy. And there's different iterations of that. Um, historically, there's a version called the Bondi's approach, uh, which uh, really is applied to the very narrow application of a lateral epitympanic cholesteatoma or pars tensa cholesteatoma that extends into the mastoid, um, but not really, uh, but really doesn't have a component which is medial to the ossicles. And these are cases where the ossicular chain is intact. So basically, the canal wall down is taken down as the lateral uh, epitympanic space is exteriorized. And, um, and the ossicles are preserved. So these are, are cases where you create a cavity, but on the flip side, you have excellent hearing. That said, far and away, the most common version of canal wall down surgery is the uh, modified radical mastoidectomy. So this would be a procedure where the mastoid is exteriorized alongside the attic uh, while preserving the rest of the middle ear space. And so the eardrum is grafted. There may be some form of osciculoplasty. The middle ear space in these cases is much smaller than the natural middle ear space. Um, but, um, you know, this is a case where you can still have uh, functional reconstruction of the eardrum and the ossicular chain while providing wide access uh, to cholesteatoma. 
And then lastly would be the true radical mastoidectomy, and that would be where the entire eardrum and ossicular chain are removed without any attempt at reconstruction. So there is no middle ear space, and basically the eustachian tube is plugged off in these, in these cases. So that would be uh, very uncommon in the modern era. So indications for open approach um, uh, to cholesteatoma would be um, really any cholesteatoma that involves the mastoid where the surgeon feels more comfortable with a wall down type approach, recurrent cholesteatoma that failed less aggressive approaches, maybe unresectable cholesteatoma. So for example, a cholesteatoma that circumferentially you know, involves the facial nerve and the mastoid segment where the surgeon doesn't think that it's really possible to get all the cholesteatoma out. Uh, maybe a patient that has a complex labyrinthine fistula where the thought is that removal of the matrix over the fistula might cause um, sensorineural hearing loss. Any type of anatomy that's not suitable for a more conservative um, wall-up uh, combined approach. And then lastly would be some patient that can't potentially undergo the needed surveillance or second look that would re be required for other procedures. So someone that just is demanding um, the best chance at only having one operation or is medically unsuitable to have multiple operations or maybe um, unreliable from a follow-up standpoint. So the pros to open surgery is that this really is the gold standard for cholesteatoma control. So there should be a 10% or less recidivism rate uh, in most published series. Uh, that's what we see. The thing about canal wall down surgery is that while it's certainly possible with uh, non-open techniques to see the subsites where cholesteatoma might be involved, it's far easier to get your instruments into the surgical field with canal wall down wide lateral um, exposure to actually instrument the disease and dissect. And so while visualization might, might not be always um, superior, it's much easier again to do the actual dissection in these uh, very uh, difficult small spaces. The downside of course is obvious. Uh, so you're going to create an open mastoid cavity that's going to be associated with a lifetime need for cavity care. It does require skill to shape these cavities, so lowering the facial ridge, generating a large meatoplasty, saucerizing the cavity, perhaps amputating the mastoid tip. You know, these are all things that are done to create a favorable cavity. I will say that even cases that are done by expert surgeons who've done lots of canal wall down procedures will have some percentage of patients who will go on to have an unstable uh, draining cavity. So the overall rate is somewhere from 10 to 50%, 50, 50. And so the variation probably depends on the technique and experience. These are generally associated with worse hearing outcomes. That's not uniformly the case in the literature, but a general thing that we see, a trend. Uh, and then there's also the issue of caloric vertigo. So cold wind or water exposure to the ear can make the patient have vertigo. The next sort of, sort of class is the so-called hybrid approach uh, tympanomastoidectomy. So these all are similar in concept. So basically what has been done is that there's a canal wall down type exposure to remove the cholesteatoma, but then some type of reconstructive technique is applied to ultimately render the anatomy more like a canal wall up scenario. So there's lots of versions of this, something like 
removal of part of the bony canal wall and then replacing it after the um, the cholesteatoma is removed. Uh, various forms of canal wall defect reconstruction with soft tissue or cartilage. There are mastoid cavity obliteration techniques where the exteriorized mastoid cavity is obliterated or and or the attic is obliterated by applying some type of filler such as bone pate uh, or a liner uh, like a soft tissue flap. So, you know, the indications for these are the same as what we would see for a combined approach or open approach. Uh, only the surgeon needs to be comfortable with them. And what they really promise is the best of both worlds. So the benefits of canal wall down surgery in terms of disease control, um, but the benefit of canal wall up surgery in terms of avoiding a cavity, uh, having, uh, you know, good hearing. The downside is that these are challenging techniques. They're not always intuitive. There's a lot of nuance. So they're not easy to teach and they're not easy to learn. Um, it takes more time uh, to do these things. And then there's always some risk of burying disease. And so if you're going to, for example, obliterate the mastoid, then you need to watch these patients and maybe even perhaps um, follow them up with a diffusion-weighted image MRI later. And then the final category, which I won't talk about too much, is subtotal petrosectomy with blind sac closure. So this is essentially a radical mastoidectomy procedure where the ear canal is closed. So basically elimination of all mucosal disease and uh, uh, pneumatized air cells. Usually the labyrinth is kept in place unless there is a dead ear. So the indication for something like this would be someone who is a very poor candidate for functional reconstruction and maybe someone who's had numerous past uh, failures of other attempts at surgery. Um, this is applied for patients with chronic ear disease and cholesteatoma who are candidates uh, for hearing implants. So the upside is that these patients can swim. It's highly effective because it gives broad, aggressive treatment of cholesteatoma and, and tympanomastoid disease. It actually renders uh, the environment sterile for future placement of an implant. The downside is that if all epithelium is not removed or if the ear canal is not um, everted and oversown uh, properly, then you can cause an iatrogenic cholesteatoma. And then there's no physical exam, so it, it, it demands radiologic surveillance. So we've talked through the different surgical approaches. Could we now touch on some considerations that you have during your surgical approach in terms of actually removing the cholesteatoma? Yeah, so often we talk about some of the spaces that are difficult to deal with surgically. These are, would be the spaces that are at high risk for cholesteatoma recurrence. So far and away, the most common that we talk about is the sinus tympani. Uh, the sinus tympani is located in the uh, posterior mesotympanum, uh, also known as the retrotympanum. Um, so knowing the anatomic borders of the sinus tympani are important. Superiorly, there's the ponticulus. Inferiorly, there's the sabiculum. Laterally, there's the mastoid segment of the facial nerve. And medially, there's the posterior semicircular canal. The sinus tympani varies in depth and pneumatization from temporal bone to temporal bone. So sometimes there's hardly any sinus tympani, and sometimes it's very deep where it extends, you know, past the facial nerve into the mastoid. So looking at that radiologically um, is useful. Um, other key difficult areas where recurrence can be a problem are 
um, around the stapes and throughout the oval window niche. Um, I can tell you that's uh, surgically uh, a very difficult area to deal with in some cases. Um, recurrence can occur within the attic. Um, there's the supertubal recess, and then there are the hypotympanic air cells. It's important to know, however, that recurrence of cholesteatoma within the mastoid itself, while possible in you know very um, extensive mastoid disease, it's actually not that common. So it is possible to widely drill out the mastoid and clear disease from the mastoid. And so that's not really one of the areas that we worry about too much. A few other, I think, uh, things to consider. With pars tensa cholesteatoma, I think it's important to understand that this forms from a posterior pars tensa retraction pocket. And so when you're raising a tympanomedial flap, the sac begins immediately at the annulus. And so cholesteatoma dissection in those cases really begins with your tympanomedial flap. And getting above and below the sac um, before you um, elevate that flap, I think is important because the idea is that you want to roll that sac out of the mesotympanum as a self-contained specimen, as opposed to tearing into that epithelium in the retrotympanum and then leaving multiple scraps of epithelium. And that's a general uh, principle of cholesteatoma surgery. In general, you want to try as far as possible to avoid piecemeal removal. So removing little bits of cholesteatoma is really not what you're going for. If you can expose most of the lateral aspect of the sac and then try to remove it as a single self-contained specimen or at least removing it in a controlled way as you know, large um, segments, you know, that's really what you want to do. And, you know, because of the, the dilemma that I just outlined, pars tensa cholesteatoma tends to be surgically more difficult than pars flaccid cholesteatoma. So, you know, keep that in mind. The other issue that often comes up is the idea of staging. So certainly if you're doing a second look operation, then um, staging is already sort of predetermined. We do think about staging with respect to functional reconstruction. So, you know, if your middle ear is severely diseased, often silastic sheeting is placed in the middle ear space, and then osiculoplasty is undertaken at the second look, uh, sometimes even uh, through the mastoid or the facial recess. But otherwise, in most cases, it's fine to primarily place a prosthesis uh, after the cholesteatoma is removed. Um, sometimes you can use this to support a cartilage graft that reconstructs the pars tensa. And the outcomes for these are usually still quite good. Of course, you can always revise these at a, at a second look if needed, but in the big picture, maybe two tries are better than one. Um, when do we perform second look surgery? So usually it occurs somewhere between six to 12 months, maybe in a pediatric patient closer to six months in an adult patient closer to 12 months. If second look surgery is not being done and instead second look is being done with an MRI, then we usually extend that out um, to somewhere like nine to 18 months so that we can detect that critical three millimeter threshold of cholesteatoma pearl. And then lastly, I think would be this idea of um, how to manage a labyrinthine fistula. Some of these um, surgeons may choose to exteriorize into a canal wall down open mastoid cavity. 
Um, but it is safe in most instances to remove the matrix off of the fistula. So the general idea is to complete your cholesteatoma resection, but intentionally leave the matrix over the fistula to be taken out last. Prior to doing that, you can flush the field with antibiotic drops and then fill it with saline and try to remove that matrix underwater if possible. And then immediately, you know, avoid suction and repair with bone wax, bone pate fascia, something like that. I will say if you're already planning a surgical second look, it's also okay to potentially intentionally leave matrix over a labyrinthine fistula with a plan to remove it at the next operation once the middle ear and mastoid infection is cleared. And I will tell you that sometimes when you do that, when you come back for whatever reason, uh, there's no matrix or no cholesteatoma there uh, as you might have expected. I next wanted to move on to outcomes, prognosis, and follow-up. Uh, when you see these patients and you're telling them about surgery, how do you counsel them on what they should expect in terms of recurrence rates and hearing outcomes, and how do you follow up with them after surgery? So often uh, the word recidivism is used uh, in the context of cholesteatoma. So recidivism is a word that means uh, return or reverting back to a prior condition. So there's two forms of cholesteatoma re recidivism. The first would be recurrent disease. So that would be a situation, say for example, in a child where you've definitively removed cholesteatoma, you may even have had a clear second look operation. And then a few years later, the patient develops a new retraction pocket cholesteatoma. So in other words, they continue to retract and once again develop a cholesteatoma. So things that we can do to help prevent that would be aggressive cartilage grafting, again, treating eustachian tube dysfunction, and then very careful observation to detect this process before um, it turns into full-blown cholesteatoma. The other category of recidivism would be residual disease. So that would be matrix of cholesteatoma that is left undetected during an operation. And this is gonna be dependent probably on the experience of the surgeon, um, the way in which the cholesteatoma is dissected, again, avoiding uh, more piecemeal dissection, perhaps applying more aggressive techniques when needed, like open or wall down surgery might help. And then hopefully we like to think that technology would help limit residual disease. So the advent of endoscopic ear surgery, maybe using something like a laser to help dissect or ablate cholesteatoma, you know, may be helpful too. Um, with respect to hearing, um, so favorable functional hearing reconstruction after cholesteatoma removal, um, as defined as air bone gap closure less than 20 decibels, is going to be achieved uh, by an experienced surgeon somewhere in the realm of 50% to two-thirds of cases. And this is going to be highly dependent on case selection. So a experienced cholesteatoma surgeon that gets referred the worst cases is going to have a harder time of it, even though they might be better at the surgery, just because there will be so many more factors uh, that are out of their control. Uh, if, on the other hand, you're just operating on early stage pars, small pars flaccida cholesteatoma, then you'll probably do better than that. And then in terms of follow-up routine, um, you know, we, this is a chronic condition, so patients need to be followed long-term. So at least a yearly exam, examination uh, over the course of somewhere from five to 10 years is probably worthwhile. 
Um, so um, kids, you might want to watch a little closer. So there's still a lot we don't understand about cholesteatoma growth and recurrence, but kids seem to grow faster than adults. And so maybe seeing them more often than once a year is a good idea. Well, Dr. Gluth, this has been a very helpful and comprehensive discussion on cholesteatoma. Thanks so much. Um, before I move on to the summary, is there anything else you'd like to add? No, I think I've said more than enough. <laughs> well, thanks. Uh, we'll now move on to our summary. Uh, cholesteatoma is a collection of keratin debris, most often in the middle ear, that can be destructive in nature. It most often presents with conductive hearing loss and otorrhea. The classically described types of cholesteatoma are congenital and acquired. Acquired is broken down into retraction pocket and non-retraction pocket, which was formerly known as primary and secondary. Workup includes physical exam, audiogram, and possible imaging, including CT and rarely MRI. Treatment is complete surgical excision with many options, including the transcanal approach, combined approach with intact canal wall, open or canal wall down mastoidectomy, and subtotal petrosectomy with blind sac closure. There's also a hybrid reconstructive technique that allows the benefits of canal wall down uh, with then creating canal wall up anatomy. Recurrence rates with canal wall up surgery are around 30%, which means regular follow-up of these patients is required based on physical exam or radiologically, depending on the scenario. Dr. Gluth, thank you so much again. Anything else you'd like to add? No, I think that's it. Uh, it's been my pleasure. Okay, we'll now move on to the question-asking portion of our time together. As a reminder, I'll ask a question, pause for a few seconds to give you time to think, and then give you the answer. For our first question, describe the two main types of cholesteatoma and the subsets of cholesteatoma. We divide cholesteatoma into congenital and acquired subtypes. The acquired sub subtypes are much more common and are further divided into retraction type and non-retraction type. Retraction type is formerly known as primary acquired and can be further broken down into pars tensa, pars flaccida, or combined subtypes. The non-retraction type is formerly known as secondary acquired, which can be associated with a perforation or iatrogenic. For our next question, define Hennebert's sign and Tulio's phenomenon and when this is seen clinically. Both of these would raise suspicion for a defect of the otic capsule, though this isn't specific for cholesteatoma. Hennebert's sign is the induction of vertigo and or nystagmus with pneumatic otoscopy, and Tulio's phenomenon is the induction of vertigo with loud noises. For our next question, what is the name of the space that is lateral to the epitympanum that is a common site of cholesteatoma? The most common site of cholesteatoma formation is in the posterior lateral epitympanic space, also known as Prussic's space. And for our last question, describe the CT and MRI imaging characteristics of cholesteatoma. On CT scan, you'll see blunting of the sputum with soft tissue opacification in the attic, especially lateral to the incus. You may see expansile changes adjacent to the soft tissue in the attic or scalloping of the bone. There may be extension into the antrum and mastoid, and at the junction at the soft tissue, there will be breakdown of air cell septations, usually with an expansile appearing rounded type mass. 
On MRI, this will show diffusion restriction, which means with non-echo planar diffusion-weighted images, cholesteatoma will be bright. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.